Uh, welcome to this City View programme, looking at how we build back better with the Institute for Continuing Improvement in uh, Public Services. My name's Neil Stewart. I'm the Editorial Director of uh, City View. And I'm joined uh, today by uh, Debbie Simpson, who is the Chief Executive of uh, the Institute for Continuing Improvement in Public Services. And just for confusion, by Joe Simpson, who is the Chief Executive of the Leadership Centre. Um, Joe has a background in local government and uh, Debbie has been back and forwards through the civil service. And today we're going to take a look at how management are preparing and how leaders in particular are preparing for um, coming out of the pandemic. But can I start, first of all, by asking my guests, uh, Debbie first, what's been your moment of the week? Uh, what has struck you the most? Well, my, my moment of the week, a personal one, I was allowed to go and join my son and my grandchildren in their bubble for the first time in months. <laughs> so... That's one up for uh, Boris and uh, widening bubbles. Uh, Joe, what's uh, what's your moment of the week? Well, uh, as we're going to be talking about some slightly more depressing things, um, one little stat, which is uh, vaccinations in London, have, as of today, just for London, have hit 3.877,000. Right, so we're at nearly 4 million jabs in London. So keep jabbing. Keep jabbing. Okay. Well, that's probably good advice because if any new variants come in anywhere from around the world, it's likely, it's likely to be here first. Um, well, my moment of the week was uh, at one minute past six last night when I was able to book my first swimming session at 7.30 on Monday morning. The algorithm finally let me in. So uh, that's cheered me up after a year where... Uh, uh, swimming has been very sporadic. So the purpose of this uh, programme is part of the build-up to uh, the uh, ICIPS conference, which is being held on the first part on the 20th of May. Um, we've had a series of these programmes starting in January uh, with uh, John McTernan and others looking at uh, how attitudes were changing to public management. And he predicted that uh, there would be a, a resurgence of the state and a reduction in some of our old friends from PFI, PPP and outsourcing. In February, we took a, a deep dive look at everyone in the big campaign to get the homeless off our streets and the remarkable transformation that government and local government were able to make in a very short period of time, uh, defying all the kinds of predictions that are made about uh, public services. Uh, last month in March, we looked with uh, Julie Mercer um, and uh, Dan from the Institute of Employment at working patterns and how they might uh, evolve. And this program is uh, designed to look at how leaders, chief execs, senior managers should prepare themselves uh, and their organisations for coming out of pandemic, assuming that we do indeed follow the roadmap uh, from the 12th of April through to the 21st of uh, June. Um, a few words from me to begin with. Uh, the past fortnight has been a remarkable uh, kaleidoscope of ideas about how the world of work 
and organization will be after the pandemic. Lots of pretty shiny glass predictions of how people will work from home, will work near at home, will work online, will enjoy flexible working, will work four days a week, uh, and how their relationships will be changed and built on. We'll have hybrid types of working, much less office space. We've even had some organizations announcing that their staff are not going to go back to the office. Uh, the question is, are they jumping the gun? Will it really make sense? Uh, and is that, in any case, the way to make policy in the middle of a very difficult period? Um, and just exactly how will that go forward? It's uh, almost 12 years since uh, Mike Lyons, the former chief exec of Birmingham, produced his report on placemaking, a rather clumsy phraseology. Um, but in a few weeks' time, we're going to see quite a lot of places assert, assert their identity. There are 25 elections for mayors on the 6th of May, and 10 of those elections are for combined authorities, the large urban areas. Uh, and these mayors are supposed to be able to pull together uh, and assist, if you like, placemaking, uh, tie together the anchor institutions, the terms that are used for the hospitals, the local authority, the university. So will we see these organizations work together or will, as we've been watching, people will stick to talking about how they're going to change their organization in their silo according to their previous rules and the world that they would like to see it as opposed to something more integrated. So uh, this is preparation for kicking off our reflections on the 20th of May. By that time, we will have had those elections. We will also have had a Queen's speech on the 11th of May. And I think it's worth people remembering that the government themselves are thinking about how to restart, how to reboot, how to come out at the end of this uh, pandemic, because after the December 19, 2019 election, they never really got a chance to set the agenda. So I think with that and the spending review and fiscal uh, re restrictions, we are coming into a very, very dramatic period. So we're joined today by uh, Joe Simpson, whom I've known for a long time. He uh, worked uh, at one point for the BBC. He's been an Islington uh, councillor. Um, but most people would know him for his work in local government and around the country with uh, the various institutions. So, Joe, I'm going to invite you to give us your thoughts on how chief executives, how leaders should prepare themselves uh, for coming out of this pandemic and how they should prepare their organisations. So, Joe, over to you. Cheers. I want everyone to do a little thought experiment and imagine you're a caterpillar. Indeed, imagine you're a very bright caterpillar, very reflective. Um, and one day you're feeling a bit odd. There's something happening. You don't know what it is, but it's definitely strange. But because you're a bright and clever um caterpillar you you think back and you think well i know i've learned three things in my life so i'll apply these three principles to get me through this what you've learned is 
stay as close to the ground as possible, move slowly, and be as inconspicuous as you can. And with that great knowledge, you then discover you've metamorphed into a highly colored butterfly flying through the air. Uh, that was not great preparation. And what I want to suggest is that coming out of this, we may be at one of those metamorphic moments uh, in terms of the change. And I want to highlight four big things which I think are happening. The first is um, the this impact in terms of the digital world. Um, if you uh, think of us doing this on Zoom, a year ago, we didn't even know what this was, right? So there were, of course, there was some technology, but we weren't using it. We were all doing face-to-face. -face. And just to give a kind of figure to indicate this change. Um, when you talk about who's the largest organizations in the world, the traditional answers used to be NHS, Chinese Army, Indian Railways, and Walmart. Uh, but actually, um, the company that's grown fastest in terms of employees in the last year turns out to be Amazon. Amazon's now... Uh, as of last October, it was at 1.3 million employees worldwide, and Amazon will continue on that trajectory. It is a truly phenomenal, but no one could have anticipated that scale of change. And you've seen that in Amazon's share price. So we've had this digital change going on, and we don't know quite how dramatic that will be. Secondly, we've seen a very dramatic economic change. Um, Last year, we had a 10% fall in GDP. That actually makes that really painful crisis of 2008, 2009 look like a walk in the park. So 10% down. And what's also happened with that is um, the people who've been affected weren't necessarily the people we'd have expected to be affected. And I'd, so it's People talk about the dramatic illustrations. I want to talk about um, hairdressers. If we ha could have everyone's Zoom picture up, we would know that one of the other things beyond going to swimming that lots of people are looking forward to next week is getting a haircut. Uh, hairdressing was the classic uh, counter-cyclical business because never mind how poor you were, your hair grew at the same rate, so you still needed a haircut. Suddenly, that whole sector has been decimated uh, through this lockdown. Third is the scale of the social change. Um, the estimate is that the population of London may have gone down by as much as 800,000. Interestingly, that's the same figure as the loss in population in New York as people have moved out. Uh, we have no idea at this point how this is go going to settle down. But we've got this real challenge of how do you do social distance and live in an urban environment? Um, I live in central London, and I would, in normal times, be using Victoria Line. Uh, Victoria Line runs at peak time about one train a minute. And when I get on, you normally have to queue two or three trains before you get on. 
there is no way you could have social distancing and a viable transport system simultaneously existing. So we've got that problem. And the fourth problem that we're facing is the scale of the fiscal challenge. Um, every time the Chancellor makes an announcement, all we know is it's got so many notes on the end of it, we can't get our heads around it. So for those of us who've spent the last decade having to live in a world of austerity, uh, we suddenly discover that the spend has been truly spectacular. But what we know is that that can't continue forever. The central banks had already used up a lot of their power, power getting over the 2008-2009 crisis. So going forward, we're going to be in a very different fiscal world. So when you put these four things together, we, we really are in a very different world. So I want to give a suggestion of how we might start to look at this compared to what we traditionally do. And in, in leadership language, we sometimes talk about tame and wicked issues or we talk about leadership management and command. I want to follow some, uh, a guy called Dave Snowden, a model called Cinefin, which kind of tries to break up the problems we face into four groups. Um, the first is kind of clear problems where there is a best practice solution. Um, if we were live at this point, I'd be asking everyone to put their hands up and say how many have ever assembled a piece of IKEA furniture. And the majority of people will put their hands up and say, yes, I've done that. And then ask a second question, how many of them did it successfully the first time round? And then you can find out who the liars are in the room because two or three people put their hands down and pretend they did it successfully. Whereas everyone knows that you think you do what you're doing because you can't, the instructions are so weird. And you discover at the end, you've got three screws, which you don't know why you've got left over. All you do know is uh, that they were, IKEA weren't wasting their money. They were meant to be used. So, what we know with these sorts of problems is there is a best practice model and you follow it to that. You can have all your inspection regimes, enforcement regimes to do that, to do that sort of problem. Slightly further up the food chain, we, we have a lot of complicated problems and th this is where professions come in and you know, surgery is a good illustration of this. You need judgment. So we're in a world of good practice. And our third element is where we get chaotic fires and stuff like that. Now, if, you, if you've ever watched how uh, firefighters are taught, the first thing that you aim to do is get the fire under control. So it's action, command structure, get it under control, and then start to deal with it. So you, your, your thing is to try and reduce the chaos. But when you get to... This fourth area, which is when we get into complex issues, like I think we are at this metamorphic moment, um, all those things which we have applied aren't successful because it's unclear what the impact of what you do will be because there are unintended consequences of what happens. Uh, put this around another way, and depending on your... Uh, intellectual aspirations, you'll describe this either to Niels Bohr, the, the famous 
atomic physicist or Yogi Berra, who was uh, a baseball player, and that is predicting the future. You know, prediction is difficult, especially when it involves the future. So what we know is we don't know. And this is a really difficult space for leaders to be in. Uh, standing on a platform saying, vote for me, I have no idea what to do, is rarely a, a winning ticket. Although, to be fair, uh, for those of you who are fans of uh, American 19th century history, there was indeed a party in the 1850s called the Know Nothing Party, which did reasonably well. And um, why it was called the Know Nothing Party was its supporters were told, if asked what were they up to, the answer was to say, I know nothing and keep dumb all the way through. So they got nicknamed the Know Nothing Party. But we're in this world where we, we have to admit that the, what will happen cannot be safely predicted. And therefore, you've got to operate in a very different way to what you would traditionally do where you look for certainty, precision, etc. But what I think suggest the way out of this is to look at three other things. The first of which is, as a species, what we're pretty good at is, and what we do most of the time, is where we sense-make rather than truth-make. That's why we also do storytelling and Actually, it is likely that um, the origin of language comes out of gossip and storytelling rather than a desire to do nuclear physics. And the third key element coming out of this is sustaining. That's both personal sustaining and collective sustaining. Because when you have this level of complexity, what we need to be doing is quite a large amount of experimentation, i.e. admitting that if we knew what to do, we would have already done it. Now, when you, so what this is against is instead of the five-year plan or the great leader announcing the solution, actually coming back to Neil's point about, about lots of mayors, what we genuinely need is a whole variety of local experimentation to test how we might adapt to come out of this. And what that requires is a recognition that not everything will work and not everything will work in the way in which we originally thought of it. Um, as we're you know, we are all now becoming medical experts as each day we discover what the risks are associated uh, with particular drugs. The AstraZeneca one in particular seems to me to be very unfairly treated, but never mind. But actually, a lot of this historically uh, goes back to the, the great crisis with thalidomide, which turned out to be a tr actually a killing disease. It was a truly disastrous drug um, in the way in which it was being used. So some in the audience might be surprised to know that thalidomide is still being used today, despite 
the dreadful harm that it did when it first came out. Because when it first came out, what we didn't know was that thalidomide was really dangerous for women who were pregnant. What we now know is that it actually is quite useful for treatment of certain cancers, particularly for old men. And to the best of scientific knowledge, we have not found any old men who've got pregnant. So we've we found a new use for it. So this is one of the other things which comes out of this, that things which were inappropriate a decade ago may now have a relevance. And so the solution that we need to get to is to be honest about the, our uncertainty. And what leaders are about is actually giving people the confidence to do these experiments, giving people the confidence to, to test and adapt and giving them protection whilst doing that rather than seeking blame and guilt. And it's a very significant switch through. And I think what we will see, as it always happens in these circumstances, is there will be places which get their act together and there'll be other places which fall behind. And then we can bring in that once we've got this out of complexity into a complicated problem, we can then bring in the measures which say we'll roll out X to try and balance up. But the real risk will be if we sort of fall for the simplicity of a straightforward solution, the person with the, the man with a plan approach and say back that. And, and having the confidence to recognize the limitations of the knowledge is the beginning of insight. And that's the switch which I think is going forward. And the, what we have to do is to recognize that there is quite a lot of physical exhaustion in the system and mental exhaustion because of the workload which people have had to take on. People have discovered that Zoom life can just be never-ending. You can just, you know, you clock on the hour and you go on to another Zoom call exactly afterwards. You don't even get the coffee break. Um, and what we know when people are tired and exhausted is you fall back to what you already know. So the other thing that we have to do is actually build uh, the time to enable people to recharge, to think differently. Because if we try and solve the problems of 2021 with the strategy of 2019, you can predict the outcome. Okay, that is uh, quite a big challenge, uh, Joe. I mean, um, we heard from uh, John McTernan a few weeks ago about how some of the private finance, privatization, and other things may have come to the end of their cycle. But uh, you seem to be indicating that some of the precautionary principle will have to be challenged, that um, uh, diversity around the country, of course, has been called post-code lottery for 30 years. 
So if there's diversions, you're going to be taking on quite a big challenge in that area. And uh, restraining people from going uh, for blame and guilt whenever the wheels come off on anything, uh, that would certainly lead to a nervous breakdown in a large part of the media. So it strikes me that uh, you have mapped out a very considerable challenge and something that puts leaders in uh, a very challenging position. So our next contribution... Can I, can I just do one little <laughs> flip back on, on postcode lottery, um, which is um, we used to have an, the audit commission, and I used to, to do the line that, that after 20 years of audit commission reports, it still rained more every year in Cumbria than it did in Cambridgeshire. And why hadn't we equalized rainfall across the country? It was one of these catastrophic failures of the Audit Commission that they allowed different rainfall. Now, of course, we accept there's a postcode, you know, there's difference. Some people like living at the seaside. Some people like living in the center of a town. Um, I, I think one of the things that, that happened with that is, uh, and it's a classic thing about the use of language, uh, people should always confront the language back and actually go for 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 what we want in a place is diversity. Mm. I mean, there's nothing more miserable in sin than going to a town that looks exactly like some other town. Have you ever been to somewhere and said, oh, I really like this place. It looks like copycat uh, of where I was last week. Oh, we must come again. I do like going to that. Of course, that is the change that we have to go through. I can remember people in the Environment Agency who uh, I think they were given the task of making sure that even if it rained more in Cumbria, that people didn't get flooded any more than they did in Kent and other places. So that challenge is always there. Our second speaker uh, today is uh, Debbie Simpson, who's the Chief Exec of the Institute for Continuing Improvement in Public uh, Services. Um, born out of work that started in the Cabinet Office, as I mentioned earlier, in my entire public management lifetime, uh, policymakers have always looked for the big bang, the great sweeping reform of health or local government that would solve everything. And yet there was always a recognition behind the scenes that small improvements, experimentation, uh, trial and error, as Joe described it, uh, but continuous improvement was in fact one of the main engines and I think we've possibly seen quite a lot of that in uh, the past year where people have had to adapt. So I'd like to invite uh, Debbie to give us perhaps a slightly longer than normal take on some of the lessons that are emerging and perhaps some of the things that are confirming the philosophy of uh, continuous improvement. So, uh, Debbie, over to you. Thanks, Neil. I'm probably going to build a bit, actually, on what Joe's already said. Um, but probably with a bit more of a, a lens on transformation and continuous improvement. And I, I think during this last year, um, we have seen so many new ways of working in response to COVID. And that's hardly surprising because crises often and usually necessitate transformation. So we've seen things like working and teaching from home. Um, anyone who's been for the COVID jab will have seen the legions of volunteers that people have managed to get together at vaccine rollout centres, which is quite unbelievable. 
Uh, we've seen different ways of enacting with customers and even different ways to stay fit. I've been doing my Joe, what's it, Joe, every day, you know, to try and keep my fitness levels up. So nothing this year has been normal at all. And these experimental, almost disruptive ways of working have undoubtedly enabled organisations to function within COVID constraints and demands. Um, we've seen loads of decisions made at pace, and that necessitates a rapid collection and assimilation of data. And it, one of our nominees for our annual awards this year um, has uh, submitted a case around data collection during COVID. And they actually used the opportunity to, to overcome historic issues around the availability of data. And it was so successful that they've already adopted it as the new approach that they're going to take forward. So we've seen a lot of change. We've seen other examples um, where the control engines of entire organisations have reformed to ensure st stability of critical operations. And on one of our previous podcasts, we heard a really inspirational story um, about an astounding piece of work to get homeless people off the streets. So quite remarkable changes have been taking place and they are transformational without a doubt. But what I'm now starting to hear um, from all over the place is that some organisations attempted to see these successes as a signal that once organisations are out of COVID, further transformation can and will be generated just as swiftly and rapidly, you know, to, to the same extent as we're seeing it now. I think some of this will be driven by political agendas and um, particularly the position the country's in at the moment. So we're facing the need to replay an unparalleled level of borrowings. Um, and this is going to mean we have challenges to face around the range and the depth of public services we provide and also who we provide them to. And I think it's going to be far easier for policymakers to visualize and articulate what we need to achieve such significant goals through transformation, rather than talking about incremental continuous improvement to achieve them. So political drivers, I think, are undoubtedly going to come into play in terms of the types of change that are being introduced and the pace of them. I think there's another group of people who've seen transformative change happen at pace and are suddenly thinking that that could be a viable alternative to other approaches to change which may have previously failed to deliver the same level of benefit so quickly. Um, and we've seen that in quite a lot of organisations who've tried to introduce various types of change programmes, Lean, Six Sigma, etc., and they've failed because they haven't taken the right approach um, and they haven't thought about changing the culture. But I think to me, at this particular point in time, the big question is whether the transformational changes that we've seen to date are sustainable long-term, and if transformation as the go-to approach is sustainable as well. Because transformation is very demanding, financially, mentally, and physically, it's wearing. And I think a lot of us are starting to feel the physical and mental impact of such intense ways of working through these last few months. Um, as we've heard already from Joe, people are getting very Zoom weary and um, they're starting to condense meetings, they're starting to look at different ways of delivering 
longer sessions and workshop sessions and making them into bite-sized chunks so that they're more digestible to people. They're starting to say um, that they relish the idea of getting back to work and I never thought I'd hear people say that, to get back to a well-paced and predictable way of working, to see their colleagues again and to separate the home and work life. So a lot of challenges coming up. And again, an another um, organisation who's put in for our awards this year has undertaken a piece of research into home working during the pandemic. And they found out that on the one hand, they've seen a huge increase in efficiency of people working from home. But on the other, um, their employees are suffering social, in the reduced social interaction that their employees are having is leading to almost a social, social isolation problem. And, and causing an impact on their job satisfaction. So a very, very mixed blessing, really, in terms of the innovations and transformations in ways of working that we've been um, witnessing. So I think we're now at a stage where leaders could be tempted to push forward with transformational change, but I think they'd be very foolhardy just to rush in. And we all know, looking back, that there are numerous examples of transformative initiatives in the public sector that have gone badly wrong. Too much has been done too fast and based on too little fact. And many of these have been driven by opportunities presented by things like new technology, where people have got very excited by the possibility of technology. Um, and they've implemented things and they've turned out to be very badly ill-conceived and they've consumed a lot of time and money in the process. And in industry, I mean, plastic, diesel engines, they were once thought of as transformative, but we don't think that now because we're better informed. I think another risk factor in, in moving too fast with everything is because as a result of COVID, the entire operating environment has changed, be, changed beyond belief. So our customers probably don't want the same things from us in the same way anymore. Whether they will do longer term or not, we just don't know. So before leaders do anything drastic at this time or just say that they're going to adopt a transformative approach to change from this point on, I hope that they sit back and address the big questions. You know, do our customers want the same services in the same way? What are the tangible benefits or almost quantifying the benefits of these new ways of working? And can employees work at pay, the pace required without impacting their health and without them being in a place where they may well make errors of judgment because of the sheer scale of change? And I think an important factor also is, can the culture support such a dramatic pace of change? And is transformation affordable? Another question. So with all these changes happening within the space of a year, I don't believe there has been any time to give the changes we've seen any meaningful level of scrutiny. And I think any action must be based on an informed understanding of the impact on the business, the services, service users, and also of the employees. Now, I don't think any of us can now forget hands face space, but for leaders considering transformative change at this stage, I'm, I've come up with a bit of a new mantra for them, which is space, brace, pace. So space is making time to evaluate properly. They need to really understand what these changes mean, not just short-term benefits, but long-term. 
brace. Um, that's to ensure continuation of service and the well-being of employees if they are going to adopt these measures long term and pace the speed of any change they may wish to introduce, especially on the back of a year that has been so challenging for everybody. But let's not just focus on transformation. I mean, I, I represent continuous improvement. That's what I champion. And continuous improvement has got a role to play in all of this. It's culturally driven. It's type of change where every employee strives to do things better. It's lots of small changes that will ultimately deliver financial benefits and better services and better ways of working. The only difference is that they're not going to man manifest in one big bang as a transformation initiative would. But if employees are focused correctly, they will definitely move everybody towards the end goal. So if you take climate change, for example, with climate change happening at such pace, big, bold transformation is essential. But the step changes, the continuous improvements required um, is required because without that and without everybody adjusting slightly the, how they approach um, climate change and contribute to it, we'll never achieve in the big goal. So CI is an essential bedfellow for transformation. And I've got no doubt that the events of the last year have opened leaders' eyes to the potentials of all types of change. But in terms of leadership, they need to take a balanced and holistic approach and think about how different types of change can support the achievements of the goals and not just jump for transformation. And they need to think of the, the, the needs of all those involved in the change. I personally think that they, a lot of leaders and managers will need to develop new skills. They almost need to be visionaries who can set the goals for the future and visualize how to get there through transformation. They need to understand what needs to be changed here and now through smaller step change. And they need to adapt management approaches to flex to evolving demands and empower workers to drive bottom-up change. And that's going to necessitate leaders and managers accepting different levels of risk, as Joe just discussed, and also looking at changes in how workers are held to account. So it's going to be a whole different world for a lot of people. Above all, I think leaders are going to need to be adaptable and brave. Um, their organisation, people and communication skills are going to be critical if they're going to succeed. Now, all those, um, uh, all those uh, leadership qualities, so to speak, have been hallmarks of leaders of successful businesses for years. But now I think in this type of environment, and if we're looking to do things differently, they need to become the norm rather than the exception. So yes, change presents a huge opportunity. It all pre also presents a huge risk. Let's look to transformative change um, where structures, maybe cultures and processes are no longer suited to current or future needs or if there's a financially driven imperative. But don't let's lose sight of the fact that succeeding with transformational change is more than just altering the way things done. I think I read recently a Swiss study of the Swiss political system during COVID, and that concluded that newly adopted systems within government clearly showed attributes of transformation, 
but they may not result in actual transformation because success would depend on a number of factors, including political will, societal preferences, power relations and financial resources. And I think those findings are something that we all need to take on board and can learn from. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> so, two, um, I wouldn't say bleak outlooks, but certainly less cheerful than some of the stuff we're seeing currently in the newspapers in which people are celebrating um, change and progress and uh, almost uh, a bit of boosterism going on in the media saying we can overcome our problems. But um, two quite careful warnings from our uh, colleagues about how difficult this could be. Um, I'm very struck, Joe. I could imagine this being turned your proposition being turned into a draft speech for a chief executive, um, perhaps in the early part of June after they've heard the Queen's speech and they've got a bit more idea about their budgets. Um, you know, just saying, like Donald Rumsfeld, that uh, we now know what we don't know, how we're going to go forward. But uh, what kind of, Joe, what kind of thing would you try and say to, say, a local authority chief executive um, because after all, some of them will have made speeches like that at the beginning of the pandemic. They will have said, you know, we're not going to leave anybody behind. We're going to check on every household. We're going to make sure that, um, you know, people have food supplies. We're going to check on the elderly. Uh, we're going to make sure people are going to say, we're going to mobilize everything we can get our hands on, not just money. What kind of speech do you think they might make uh, looking forward to the next stage? with your kind of caveats in it. Oops, I think you're on mute, as usual. <laughs> I... Nope, you're still. There we are. I'm unmuted. Um, one of the things we've learned out of... Um, the handling of the pandemic is where things have gone badly wrong. And uh, Test and Trace has, um, when the ex-head ex of the Treasury says it has been the most expensive failure in the whole of his time in government, that is quite a statement to come out from Nick McPherson. Now, what we know actually is the test bit worked quite well. The trace bit didn't work. Why the trace bit didn't work is they tried to do it nationally. Um, my daughter told me this morning that she'd had, by 10 o'clock, she'd had two phone calls, both of which were scams, telling her that she'd be imprisoned if she didn't ring this number back within half an hour because she'd been caught doing some fraud, right? Most of us now know that if we don't recognize a telephone number, we don't answer it because we know it's a scam. So attempting to do that, that tracing nationally was bound to fail. And actually, the minute it got handed back to, to local insight and knowledge, it's worked a lot more successfully. And we saw a variety of places go into that. And bit by bit, we're now getting the right solution, which is... Uh, using the, the muscle of purchasing power to get a really uh, robust and affordable 
testing model with a lot of local tracing. So this is, I am not suggesting that, that every place becomes an island. What I'm saying is that that's a brilliant illustration of how we've got to have a different balance and recognize what is the strength of locality. The second thing which I think uh, we need to recognize is that people have become much more conscious of their place over the last, right? The, the one thing you, you, you've been allowed to do is walk, right? That means for lots of people, their, well, their knowledge of their place was, how do I get from my home to wherever I'm, I'm getting transport to or whatever? And as you started to walk, people have got a much stronger sense of where they live at, I think, coming out of this. So what I'd be saying is let's build on that. And let's, what you want to say is what can we, what can be in the same way that companies look out for what's our USP. I think part of the job of a local authority chief executive is to say, what's my place's USP? And how do I build on that? And if I can find something that's distinctive, that people really appreciate about the place, I've got a, a really important building block for the future. And some of those USPs will be in the collective history of the place. So it's not, you know, you don't, it's not that everyone's got to pretend they're going to be the sort of uh, new technology center of the universe. There are concentrations of that. You, you find what is, what is the thing that can give our, our place a difference? How can I get pride in our place? How can I get connection in our place? You, you mentioned in there looking after people who've been isolated, um, developing a collective sense of we're in this together in a place. You know, without doubt, the biggest single mistake uh, that the government made was covering up for Dominic Cummings, right? Cummings allowed, there's one rule for them and a different rule for us, right? That, what, what local government can embrace is we're in this together. We, and we're going to get out of this together. And I think that's a really motivating line to empower your staff and to sell to your people. Let me ask Debbie a question. Um, Ten years ago, when the Conservatives came in, we had two strikingly different approaches to reform. We had Eric Pickles, who came into local government and simply said your budgets are cut, um, you have to publish everything you spend, get on with it, and left local authorities to go and figure out how they were going to survive. Andrew Lansley, on the other hand, came in with a plan and uh, pushed his plan through. And it seemed that that had many of the failings, Debbie, that you described. What's your reflection on those two uh, approaches which were encapsulated almost within one uh, government because it strikes me that local government in the first five years did actually cope with very dramatic uh, cuts but because it was left to local discretion. What's your thoughts on, on that reflection? 
I, I think the the former uh, worked better. Um, certainly from where I was, I was working in mainly in uh, local government at that stage and helping them achieve some of those cuts that they had to make. Um, and they were given a target. It's a bit like being presented with COVID. They had to find a way to overcome them. And they did. And they used a lot of imagination. They took a lot of care. It was very much user service driven. So they always kept the, the needs of the end user at the heart of all the changes that were made. But they came up with a remarkable amount of initiatives to try and save money. One I remember was right first time every time. I mean, how simple an approach is that? And it works, you know, by using that approach, they, they stripped out a lot of non-value adding activities and they addressed key source of challenges and problems and solved them. So that did seem to work very well from where I, from, from where I was sitting. Hmm. And um, now, Joe, you went through a list of things which would fall into the category that Debbie described as uh, significant cultural changes. So if you're going to lead in local government, not being afraid of uh, a blame culture, uh, being prepared to challenge regulatory frameworks, um, you know, willingness to use what you described there as identity politics, really, you know, pick something that shows that there's something peculiar about your part of Yorkshire or your part of Kent, and that that describes a character uh, or a strength that can be applied across everywhere. These are big cultural changes for public sector managers whose ethos has been do not get into the direct line of fire. Uh, let the lawyers sort it out. Stick to process. Uh, be precautionary, and uh, you know, don't get me started on Grenfell, really. But let, let me give you just two illustrations back. One from each side of the political managerial divide. Um, no one has ever accused Sir Richard Lee's leader of Manchester of being a quiet mouse, right? But by God, he embodies that kind of Mancunian spunk. And, you know, uh, there's a great joke about Manchester. Where, uh, I'll, I'll tell um, and apologies to any Brummies on the call. Um, when uh, the NEC was opened, Somebody wrote a letter into the Guardian and said, you know, Birmingham's status as second city is now surely unchallenged. And the next day, a letter came in from Manchester, delighted at this resurgence of civic pride in Birmingham, saying for far too long, London had claimed second city status unchallenged. You know, only a Mancunian could get off of that. But, but Richard embodied that sort of real Mancunian spunk on the... On the managerial side, Tom Reardon's leadership of Leeds has been spectacular. And, you know, Leeds is now a city of over 800,000 people. It, it is transforming at a pace. And um, it has, the ambition is absolutely stunning. And I'll give us an illustration of that because I think it's, it's really quite interesting. As Tom came into Leeds, Leeds had a disastrous children's services, really problematic. But, and quote, normal safe solution 
would be to try and stop Leeds having a, a poor children's service department. They didn't have that aspiration. The aspiration they set is, we'll make Leeds a child-friendly city. Says that requires a good children's service department, but that's not the object. The objective is putting kids centre stage for Leeds, right? And it's that sort of switch, framing your ambition in a way which you can take out to people. Because frankly, saying to, if you say my ambition is to get our children's service department to be better, most of us are going to say, well, get on with it, mate. That's what you paid for. Saying to it, our aim is to make the city child-friendly actually brings everyone into the into the exercise. That's the switch. So it's 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 a, just a slight reframing of what what you're doing out of the organisational into outcomes. Well, that, that Rebecca has. Uh, we've got a question coming in from Rebecca asking about, you know, the what are the kind of practical skills that leaders need? Are that that question of do they lead by targets or do they lead by ambitions and that in encapsulating uh, objective outcomes? Um, Debbie, what's your view on the pros and cons of those? Or is it just does really depend on uh, that targets have their place and uh, outcomes and uh, philosophies have their place depending on what challenge you're facing? Absolutely. That, that is what I believe. I don't think there's one size fits all. Um, I'm not a big believer in targets for targets' sake. I think they can drive completely the wrong behaviours. So if you have targets, they have to be extremely well thought through before you introduce them. And um, they don't necessarily even drive improvement. They can just maintain the status quo if you're not careful. And I've seen some that and heard of some very perverse behaviours um, by people to meet targets. So, I'm, but having said that. Some of my senior executives that I've managed throughout the years have struggled without a target because it has given them a bit of a security blanket, if you like, and a bit of a target to work to. So I've always tried to give stretch targets. Personally, I quite like those, um, which sort of overcome, overcome that, but gives them something to work to. But my son um, worked for quite a long time as a senior engineer at Dyson, now, their approach is quite different because he, he didn't even have a job description. He was told what the outcome was he had to achieve and just deliver it. You know, no, no targets, no performance management. And the whole of their culture was driven around personal accountability and getting people in the company with the right motivations and the right ways of working so that they knew they would be achievers, basically, and they'd work on their own volition to, to do whatever was needed to get the job done. And the culture and the whole feeling of that organisation when you go into it was really quite dramatically different to anything I've ever experienced before. And they certainly got the goods delivered. Um, Joe, can I ask you a question? Um, I don't know the answer to this myself. But in a place like Leeds or in Manchester, um, do the heads of the what are called anchor institutions ever actually sit down together? So the chief exec of the local authority, the vice chancellor, the heads of the college, the heads of the hospitals, the three biggest companies, uh, the rail, you know, the chief constable, all as the people who are major employers, drivers, 
you know, uh, all of them who, you know, have transport fleets, they've got computer systems. You know, we, we've had periods of shared services and things, but in placemaking, do they sit down and talk about uh, what they're going to do for their place and how they might uh, help one another out or are they stuck in their silos? Joe? I mean, I think in the successful places, you've seen that change. Um, Leeds has a really good uh, interface between health and local government. And remember, in health world, Leeds used to be the, the sort of headquarters, right? It's only recently that everyone's flocked back to London. So Leeds is, is it, one of the big anchor institutions of Leeds is health world. Um, so that relationship is, has really improved. And and universities are quite critical. And I think one of the interesting things, particularly in the northern universities, is northern city universities are it's really interesting when you see that that interface as universities as drivers of change in a place as when you start to realize the the footprint which these institutions have on a place and how the things go together uh, and that that is again switching from uh, and i think this has come back to you know, a curious side effect of Eric Pickles. If you ain't got the money, you need to get some allies to help you do stuff, don't you? One of the difficulties of having lots of, you know, of if, if you've always have got the money, you think, well, I can do it, right? If you haven't got the money, you've got to find friends to help you do stuff. And so one of the consequences of, of uh, this, and uh, so this is not advocating austerity, but one of the consequences of that was that clever people realized they had to reach out and engage. And once you start on that journey, it gets a lot better. And what, what we need for that is not dramatic, big structural stuff, but actually starts, I mean, you know, one of our slogans is start anywhere, go everywhere. So wherever you start, keep going, right? But start where you can get some momentum and build on it. There is never a perfect place to start, but the best place to start is where you've got a chance of winning. Now, some people will describe that as quick wins, but I'm, I'm describing it as finding that, that chink when you can build, because once you've got a, a working relationship, you can build on it, you can do more. And, it, and it's that, then you do get continuous improvement because then the other side comes back and says, can you help me with this? Because I think you've got a stake in this too. And then suddenly you can build up on that but you've got to build on that confidence by starting somewhere. So start somewhere. Okay. So a powerful message there about recognizing uncertainty, recognizing what is unknown, start honestly. Um, last word to you, Debbie. Uh, I mean, you've given us space, brace, and pace, which seem to me to be wise uh, phrases 
which we shall tweet out afterwards. But uh, one final word from you. I can't think of one. <laughs> um, no, I think listening to everything we've heard, I think that, I mean, I wouldn't like to think it's a gloomy picture at all. I think there is a lot of good work has been done. I think the lessons that come out of it will be absolutely fantastic and almost as, um, they'll, they'll be as inspirational really as the pace of change has been through the years and I'm sure we will all arrive in a far better place as a result of this, I quite believe that Okay, well listening to the two of you, I think one thing I've taken is that uh, leaders in the next phase are going to need a new kind of uh, courage uh, to face up to these challenges and to lead, so can I thank uh, Joe Simpson from the Leadership Centre and Debbie Simpson from the Institute for Continuous Improvement in Public Services. Um, ISIP's uh, conference program starts on the twentieth of May. Uh, please follow the podcasts and live streams that we've been doing, and hopefully we'll help equip people uh, to face the challenge uh, that ahead. So. That's all from uh, City View and our Westminster studio. And thanks to both of my uh, guests this evening. Thank you.